Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to turn to two different passages, and I'm giving you warning up front. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, that is where we will begin, and then we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we draw to a close. So I want to invite you to turn to both of those. We won't be in 2 Corinthians for a while uh, towards the closing of the message in about two or three hours. So just kidding, maybe. So turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we've been talking about the Beatitudes. We've been talking about uh, blessed are the fill in the blank and how Jesus was using this as a way to explain to the people following him how they are to live. And I know this might be hard to imagine, but picture a group of people listening to someone that is proclaiming something and they're thinking it's for someone else. This can't possibly be for me. This is for an elite group of the special ops forces of Jesus, if you will. Because I'm just a common person, I can't possibly do what he's asking me to do. Now, if you remember, we talked that the book of Matthew, and so much of Matthew, is what the early church used to form churches. And I've kind of kid around saying this was the manual for church planning or the manual to start a church. Obviously, that's not what they called it then. That is using today's terminology. But really, we can learn so much from the early church, specifically from this passage. And so as Jesus walks through uh, here in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever delivered by the greatest pastor ever. And he's explaining to them how they are to live. And so we've walked through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers that Will did such a great job talking about last week. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and hurt you and harm you and talk bad about you for his sake. So we've talked through these And now Jesus brings it into this rubber hitting the road, if you will, in the next three verses. Jesus is now making this extremely personal to those that are listening. He is now explaining that this is not for some elite group of people who have chosen to follow me. This is for everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. We talked at length this summer and want to continue that this is for those who consider themselves a disciple of Jesus. Those of you who have made Jesus the forgiver of your sin and the the leader of your life, this is now how you live. He wants them and he wants you and he wants me to know our role in the world. And he's using it in terminology for the people at that time, but what's crazy is it's the same stuff we use today. So this passage is about finding your identity in Christ and using the influence that he gives you for his glory in a local church setting. John MacArthur says that the church today is more influenced by the world than the world is influenced by the church. He wrote that in 1975. Why? Well, it has always been that way. It has always been the minority of people who are following after God because darkness is always around. Sin is always around in the world. Satan is always trying to distract. Satan is always trying to pull people away from following after 
God. So when we read this passage, remember this is about how your identity is in Christ. And he wants to use that identity that he has given you through the spirit that he has given you, transforming you into the likeness of Jesus to influence the world around you. This passage in a lot of ways is about influence. Your influence because of Christ through the Holy Spirit in the world. So there's really going to be two parts to this message. Uh, We're going to go through an application at the end, but a lot of the application is going to come next week and how this plays out. Because here we're going to talk about how Jesus explains the function of a church, and next week we're going to talk about how the church now responds to that instruction, and very specifically how Hope Church responds to that instruction. In the book Growing a Healthy Church, they quote a business genius who also knew the Lord named George Eodorn. Uh, He wrote several books in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and he introduced business methods of how do you stay focused on track. But he wrote this about the church. The typical church is an activity trap, having lost sight of the higher purposes for which it was originated. It now attempts to make up for this loss by an increased range of activities. The typical church is an activity trap having lost sight of the higher purpose for which it was originated. And that's what we want to talk here. This is what Jesus, this isn't a pastor saying, well, this is what this verse means. This is Jesus looking directly at his disciples saying, this is what I want from you. This is your role. This is how you use the influence that I'm giving you in the world around you. So in order to function properly as the bride of Christ and his body, which is what the church is referred to, we need to study the basics of the foundation and calling that we were given by the greatest pastor of all time, preaching the greatest message ever. Because churches are always wondering what to do next that will attract people or keep people. So again, the next two weeks we're going to be talking about how does this play out for us. Those aren't necessarily bad things. That's what we are kind of told to do, but Jesus is giving us here the manual and how to do it. So join with me. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5. We just skimmed through the first uh, 12 verses, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Hopefully you're still memorizing verses 1 through 12. But starting in verse 13, Jesus says, and this is right after you are going to be persecuted. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you endure these hardships because of me. And then he says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, hopefully you're taking notes. I want you to write these down. Point number one. Be salt in a rotting world. It sounds harsh that I'm calling the world rotting, but in reality, it is. Uh, In reality, everything in a way is rotting away. And only those things that Jesus calls eternal will last forever. So the world around us is rotting away. It is being destroyed. 
What does it mean to be salt in a rotting world? First, we have to look at the definition of being salt and understand what it meant at that time. Uh, salt had a high value in the ancient world, uh, but it was also very common. It was one of these rare things that had high value. Uh, in fact, Roman soldiers would often opt to be paid in salt, and that's where we get the saying from, he's not worth his salt. Uh, it was they would be paid in salt. They would choose because salt had such a high value to it. Uh, but it was also common. It was used uh, as opposed to other valuable things. Salt was used all the time, and we'll get into its uses in a moment. But please remember that as we apply this to our lives, salt was valuable but common. Salt could be found in the biggest mansions, but also in the poorest of homes. Uh, so it was valuable, you used it, it was part of everyday life, but it was also common. Salt was very useful and it served many purposes that were needed, ju not just then, but today. We use salt regularly. Uh, we need it. So again, it's, it's useful, it serves many purposes, as do you and I in Christ. We are useful no matter what you think, no matter what people tell you, no matter what negative influences you've allowed in your life, God has made you and God has made you useful. And God has used you to perform the various purposes that he wants you to accomplish here on earth. So some of the many uses of salt. And what's interesting in studying for this is it seems like almost Every author has a different reason that Jesus said this. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at all of them. I'm looking at all the reasons that they used salt at that time uh, and also just some of the natural effects of salt. Now, I do think there was a bigger purpose and I'll look at that last. But the first thing that salt was used for then is used for now is it added flavor. It added flavor. And I know that there is belief systems and at times they were very true and uh, you can read many authors and you can read many books on the boring lifestyle of a believer. Uh, how people would say um, they would go to church and if that's what being a believer is, I don't want any part of it. Uh, people with long faces who are sad and who beat themselves up daily, no thank you. But what we are told is different. We're constantly being told that to have joy, that we have hope, we have forgiveness, that we are to be this beacon around us. We are to add flavor to life. Everything that was created by God was created for a special purpose. The world has destroyed and corrupted and, and manipulated these purposes for their own things. And that is what destroys. But when done is the way Jesus designed them to be, they do not become better. So by doing the things that Jesus has designed and the manner in which he tells us to do them, it adds flavor. It adds joy to our life and a joy that the outside world should look at and say, I need that. How do they have this joy and this peace in a time when the world is so hopeless? So number one, Jesus is saying, I believe that we can add flavor to life. We add a sense of hope and joy to a world that is hopeless and is only knows joy on the outside happiness, covering up the inside hurt. Another way that that was used was it was a necessary, it was a needed part of one's diet. Um, even now, people take salt tablets to help retain water so that they don't dehydrate. Uh, they use these in jungles and all over the place. Salt was necessary. Now, we might cut out salt, and the problem is we eat too much salt sometimes. 
And so I'm speaking not, of course, of myself, but of probably you. Just kidding. But the salt was a necessary part of the diet. There was nutritious elements to salt. And so we are to be this nutritious element to the world in which we live. Something else that's interesting about salt and is that salt causes you to be thirsty. And if we look at what Jesus calls himself, that he is the water that lasts for eternity. And he says, uh, when we were going through John a couple years ago, we talked about how they were going through this ritual of bringing water and dumping water out on the altar. And Jesus says, I am the eternal water. Jesus in John 4, when he's sitting at the well with a Samaritan woman, says, How with, what would you, wouldn't it be great if you could drink from something that you never became thirsty again? He says, that is me. In Psalm 1, he's told to plant a tree so the roots grow into the living water. And so we should be living in a way that points people to the water that quenches the thirst for eternity. We should be living in a way that causes people to thirst after Jesus. Psalm tells us, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Are we causing the world around us to thirst after Jesus because of what they're seeing in our life? But the most common use for salt in the world at this time, and really up until just the last 70, 80 years, was it was used as a preservative. Remember, we've only lived in a short window of time where we have refrigerators and um, ice and these different things that can be transported. And so for the majority of the world, salt was used as a preservative so that things didn't go bad. And if we look at the world, we constantly see through the history of God's influence and how God uses his people to preserve a rotting world to point people to him. That as a preservative, we, knowing Jesus, we can tell people how they can be preserved for eternity with their king and their God and their ruler and their maker. That we are influenced in the world, no matter how much we think we aren't influencing, we are told that at the end times, when God calls all his children back to him, I believe it'll be seven years before the world implodes on itself, literally. When God removes his spirit, when God removes the people that are indwelled with his spirit from the world, it will take just what seems like a minute in the course of history for the world to kill itself and murder itself. So we are here as a preservative. We are here to represent life in Christ. We are here to tell others and show others what it is to know Jesus. We are meant to live in a way that impacts our neighborhoods and our communities to demonstrate what it is to know God. And this is what I really believe. I think Jesus may have meant all of these things, but because this was the main use for salt at the time, I think that is what he is calling us to do. That we are to live in such a way that it points people to Jesus. This is our role. This is the first thing that he tells us to do. Point number two, what does he say? He says, be light in a dark world. I shouldn't have to give you a definition of light. I think almost everybody has experienced it in some way. But I will say, I remember um, one time I was at a camp and this camp was on an island. And one of the nights that you're there, you go out and you go camping. So me and the guys from my cabin, we went out. There's much more to this story, but I'll give you the brief, brief version. So we went out and there was another big cabin that came out and they were camping near us. So we were kind of scared. We didn't know them and, you know, we knew that they were always doing pranks and that they were doing all this stuff and we didn't want to be pranked in the middle of the night in our sleeping bag. I think I was like 13 years old. 
And so we said, hey, let's just climb over those rocks over there and we'll be safe all night long. So we did, we went over, we crawled over these rocks where they couldn't see us. And if they were gonna go try to do something in the middle of the night, they wouldn't be able to know where we were because it was so dark. Now this is up in the Adirondack Mountains where at night, and there's so many pine trees and mountains, there it was black, like you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And we didn't really even have much of a flashlight. We were going off what the campfire ways away was reflecting. So we go there, we go to sleep. Nothing happens to anybody like we ever scared for no reason. But when we woke up, we realized that just past where our feet were, there was a 40 foot drop off onto sharp rocks below. We couldn't see it. It was so dark, we had no idea. We had no idea that by trying to protect ourselves, we almost killed ourselves. And so this is the importance of light. And I know, again, I don't have to really define the importance of light. Why? Because today we need light just as much as they did in the ancient world. Now, for us, it's pretty easy. We walk into a room, we flip a light switch on. We are very dependent upon electricity. In there, the lamp was just a uh, small dish that you could pour oil in on one end and there would be a wick in the other that you would light. And you would put it up somewhere high. And that's why I said the light was lifted up because if I put it over in the corner and then sat in front of it, it does nobody any good in the rest of the house. And so they would have these lampstands and they would put the lamp high up on these lampstands so it would bring light to the whole room. So oil was very uh, common use as well, but this light was so important. And so that's what he is telling us is we are to be light. In fact, how many times is Jesus referred to as the light of the world? John 9, 5, he says, I am the light of the world. Look at what he says as he starts to transition this in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 8. He says, Paul's writing, he says, for you were once darkness. Not that you were in darkness. He's like, for you were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. God or Jesus was the light that came into the world. John chapter 1 talks about this. And now he's saying, and now you are that light. You were once darkness, but now you are light. You are to represent God, you are to represent Christ, you represent Jesus in this world because of the Holy Spirit. And I love how he says, don't be drunk with wine, but the picture here is just as you may see an inebriated person on alcohol and that alcohol is all of a sudden causing them to do things you know they would never do, 
not being drunk, that they are making some of the dumbest decisions you've ever seen a human being make. He's saying be drunk or allow the Spirit to take over your body in such a way that what comes out is the fruit of the Spirit that we're always mentioning in Galatians 5. That is what you should fill yourself up on, is the Spirit. That is how you become this light in the world, is when you walk in the way of the Spirit. And what happens? You bring light into the darkness. It's twofold. It's a very good thing when you have light in the darkness. But those that enjoy the darkness do not want a light shown on them. They do not want a light shown on the deeds done in darkness. And I think this way that immediately follows, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those that the world hates. And he says, the world will hate you because of me. Meaning that when we live in a way that represents Christ, when we live in a way that represents the light, it will automatically cause those in darkness to either turn to Christ themselves and run towards the light or try to put out the light. I mentioned a couple weeks ago at the end of the service that uh, in the book, My Almost for His Highest, the author writes that he says the American church isn't experiencing persecution because it's a free country. The American church isn't experiencing persecution because we're not doing what God told us to do. What God says that the world will hate you if you live like me, that doesn't have anything to do with what governmental forces and authority. That has everything to do with light exposing darkness. Leonard Ravenhill said that when we, and I said this way long ago, he said if Jesus spoke most of the messages that pastors in America speak, he would have never been crucified. Meaning that it is our job, our calling, not just me as a pastor, but you, wherever God has appointed you over, that we are to live in such a way that the light of Jesus exposes darkness and calls people to repentance. That brings with it persecution. That brings with it people not liking you. That brings with it people saying all kinds of evil about you because of Jesus. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of a t-shirt they're wearing. Blessed are those who live like Jesus. 1 John 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1, starting verse 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. How are you doing walking in the light? Are you representing God in your everyday life? And he goes on now in my next point. Um, as he continues this illustration of a light, he says this, point number three, be a city on a hill in a world stuck in the valley. So we've seen a rotting world, we've seen a dark world, and now we have a world stuck in the valley. Now again, this may not make too much sense to us because we have lights everywhere we go. And if we're out at night, we're usually in a car with headlights pointing us where to go. But at this time, to not be in a city meant that you were very alone. To not be in a city and not be traveling with other companions meant that when that sun went down, you were open to thieves and robbers and wild animals. When we look at the animals that lived at this time, we have jackals, wild dogs, lions, bears, 
and you are now open prey to all of them. They can see you, you can't see them. And so think of yourself as a traveler and you're going from one village to the next village and the sun is starting to go down. And you know that when that sun goes down, it is as dark as dark can be. And then just on the horizon, you see it. You see some lights starting to come on as the bigger lamps are being lit in the city. And you have hope. I can make it to that city. Why? That city will bring with it protection. That city will bring with it uh, where my needs can be met. I can find what I'm looking for in that city. And it's on a hill so I can put my eye on it and walk straight towards it. And that is what he is telling us to do. The city on a hill, when those lights come on, people know to go to that for protection. During the day, people would leave the safety of those walls and go out and do their different jobs, travel, take care of their tasks. But at night, you wanted to be inside those city walls. And that's what Jesus is saying. That is how the church should function. That those outside the church can say that is a place where there is safety. That is a place where the needs I've been so desperately looking for can be met. That is a place that is lit, that I can see, that I can get out of the darkness, that I can remove myself from this unsafe place that I'm in right now where I feel very alone and very threatened and I can go and be with other people who bring with them that protection. Because with other people comes protection and help. When we isolate ourselves, we open ourselves up to destructive forces and we are alone. We get ourselves in trouble spiritually when we remove ourselves from a local church body and we want God on our own terms. When we remove ourselves from the body of Christ, from the bride of Christ and say, I can figure this out on my own, we open ourselves up to all sorts of destructive forces and Satan is that wild animal seeking to destroy. He is that lion waiting for his prey to come into sight. And when we isolate ourselves, that is exactly what we are doing. And then point number four, we kind of wrap up right here in the last verse. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So number four, glorify God, not ourselves. We had a saying that we were saying for a while, a couple years ago, and it says that we either we work either to make God look awesome or ourselves look awesome, and we cannot do both. Everything we do in life, we are choosing whether we are trying to make God look awesome, which, by the way, we don't have to work very hard at. God makes himself look awesome. We just have to point people to him. Or we work very hard at making ourselves look awesome, and we cannot do both at the same time. And that's what the point of this is. That is what we're going to talk about more in depth next week. Is everything that we, excuse me, everything that we do should be pointed at bringing all glory to God. That the things that we do, and it says that people may see your good works. We can do good works for two reasons. One, because it makes us feel good, and we can do good works because people are going to think I'm really great. Or we do good works so that we can say no. If you knew me and you knew what a horrible person I am, you know that there is a much more powerful force enabling me to do this. And we point people to God. All things are for God's glory. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this about the church. C.H. Spurgeon was uh, called the Prince of, Pe Prince of Preachers in the 1800s in England. 
And he says, a church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood, a church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice and to hold up righteousness, is a church that has no right to be. Not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. These are a powerful statement from Spurgeon. And Spurgeon at this time was going through all sorts of bad talk about him and verbal persecution from the government forces in England and other pastors who didn't like what he was saying and didn't like what he was doing. And this is what Spurgeon said, that we do these things not for us. We don't do these things for us. We don't exist for us. We exist so that people can know God, that people can know God's love for them, that people can know God's forgiveness, that the peace and the joy that only God can provide, we do these things because we've experienced them and we want them to know what it is to know God. So how do we wrap this up? How do we start now to look at the application of this? And again, next week we're going to be spending a lot more time on the application of how this plays out as a church, but for you individually, because this isn't just about the church that you're part of any more than it was for the people on this mountainside listening to Jesus speak, thinking that this is for everyone but not me. This is also for the you as a person. This is for you as your family, as your household. This is for you as an individual. How do you apply this to your life? G. Campbell Morgan said this in 1929. Jesus, looking out over the multitude of his day, saw the corruption the disintegration of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation. And because of his love for the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was salt in order for the corruption should be arrested. He saw them also wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amid mists and fog. He knew that they needed, above everything else, light. Jesus looked at this crowd and he knew their hurts. He knew that they were walking around wherever he says he saw the multitudes and he had compassion on them. He knew the mists and the fogs, the darkness that they were in, the gloom that they were sitting in. They saw the corruption all around them. For us to think that corruption is something new is so false. As long as there has been human government, there has been corruption in government. The disintegration of life at its every point the no more value of human life. Wherever we see these things, we knew that that life needs to be preserved. We knew that all of these things need to be preserved and it's going to come through the influence of God's children. Oswald Smith wrote, Oh, my friends, we are loaded down with countless church activities. Well, the real work of the church, that of evangelizing the world and winning the lost, is almost entirely neglected. We as a church, our first goal is to see other people come to know Christ. Our first goal is to do everything that we can to preserve life for eternity. And the only way that that happens is by introducing people to Jesus. Our goal is to shine light into the darkness, not just to show darkness, but to show people the way out of the darkness, to illuminate the way to Jesus Christ, to point them to the light. So to go back to the passage, I'm going to have a couple questions for you. Number one, 
Are you tasteless salt? Here's the interesting thing about salt. And Jesus saying that if your salt be loses its saltiness, it's no good and it's thrown underfoot. Salt can't lose its saltiness. Uh, salt is what it is. However, where salt was collected by the Dead Sea, there is a huge problem. There are so many other minerals and there are so many other things that look like salt and cling to salt that when you would collect salt from the Dead Sea, it, you'd find out very quickly that it wasn't just salt. You'd have all of these other additives that you didn't need. So salt didn't lose its saltiness. Salt was corrupted. Salt was corrupted by outside forces or outside things that clinged to the salt and ruined the salt, making the salt lose its saltiness. So when I ask the question, are you tasteless salt? It means, have you allowed outside things that look like salt to cling to you? Have you become useless because of allowing the outside world to pollute what God has destined for his purpose? Because he says, you are useless and you'll be thrown out and cast underfoot. You'll be thrown out and you'll be tread upon, you'll be walked upon, you now serve no purpose. Everything that you were designed to be is no more. It is of no use. So are you tasteless salt? Has the outside world clung to you? Has the outside world disguised itself, rendering you useless in what God has called you to do? And question number two, are you covering up your light? Are you covering up your light? The number one reason that we hide our light is quite simply because we do not love God enough to love those he told us to love as he loves. He gave us the spirit in order to do it, but are we quenching that spirit? Again, the number one reason we hide our light is quite simply because we do not love God enough to love those he told us to love as he loves. We don't love other people in the church. We do not love people outside who do not know God. And we do not care for the multitudes as Jesus cared for the multitudes. We do not have compassion on them. And we do not, as we defined mercy, we do not have compassion with action. And so are you covering up your light? Now the third question that would be here is, are we a city on a hill? But these are individual. Are you being salt? Has your salt lost its saltiness? And are you covering up the light? And I love how Jesus says, who lights a light and then puts a bowl over it? I'm thinking like if I'm taking my kids outside at night and we have these massive floodlights on the house and I turn them on, I say, okay, kids, let's go outside. And then I immediately go and get all of this light covering to cover up the light. What was the point of turning it on in the first place? It serves no purpose. And so with you, are you covering up the light that is supposed to be shining and emanating out of you? Next week, we'll talk about what it is to come together and be a city or a village on a hill that's well lit. But I want to close with a passage in 2 Corinthians 3. And in 2 Corinthians 3, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12, Paul is talking about Moses going up on top of the mountain and receiving the stones, the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And when he came down from that mountain, because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. Now remember, in the end, when we are with God and his kingdom and he has made all things right in the world, it says the sun is no longer needed because God's glory shines brighter than the sun and there will never be darkness again. 
So just a small part of God's glory passes by Moses, and it is so bright that when he comes down from the mountain, the people ask him to cover up his face because the brightness is shining up, God's glory is shining off his face so much the people can't take it. That's God's glory. And so Paul is explaining that those laws that God gave to Moses were of condemnation. It was showing all the wrong that we do. But now Jesus came, and in a couple weeks we're going to start talking about how he fulfilled the law, and now we have this spirit of freedom. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And Paul writes, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now jump into chapter 4. Therefore... This is the application. I want you to study this passage and go back through it and read it every day. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, makes his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. 
All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. I didn't know how to shorten that passage up anymore. It ties in so perfectly what we've been saying. When he talks, he calls us that we have this light, that we have this treasure, this light, but in Earthen jars, earthen jars are common. They were everywhere. When they would break, they were thrown away because they were easily replaced. And so he's calling us. This isn't a good thing. He's calling us. We are common. Salt was common but valuable. Jesus is saying you are valuable but common. I need you everywhere. And he's looking at these people in Galilee and understand these were poor people. Nobody, they didn't live near a big city. They were, uh, as Jesus says, he looked and they were sheep without shepherds. They were harassed. They were hopeless. And he brought hope to them and not just to them, but he said, now you are the salt of the earth. You are valuable, even though you view yourselves as common. Although you should go into every area of life, you are valuable to me. You can be found in the mansions and you can be found in the sheds. I need you to be salt in this earth and to bring light with you and to point people to the light. And we do this for God's glory. We do this because this is how we point people to Christ. And that is why we exist here on earth. That is what God has called you to do and that is what God has called me to do. So when we do this individually, we can come together corporately and we get to celebrate the victory that we've seen this week. And next week we're going to talk more about how this plays out in a local church setting. So Hope Church We love you. Hope Church, let's be the church throughout the week. When this service ends, that's not the end of church. That is the beginning of you being the church everywhere you live, work, and play. And we do this together for God's glory. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to celebrate you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you don't call us to yourself and then leave things vague, but you tell us exactly what you want us to do. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get, fill our lives up with so many activities, whether it's church or not, that we forget the one purpose that you have called us to be, and that is to point people to you. Lord, that you would work in our, and then your, through your spirit in our lives, that we would not quench the spirit, that we would love people as you love people, that we would see people that you bring into our lives as people who need you, and that, Lord, you would guide us, that you would show us, how to best represent you for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.